Your Creativity, Episode 14. I actually like the Americans' attitude towards art a lot more in some ways. To me, Canada is not an entrepreneurial country, and the art system in Canada is not an entrepreneurial system. You're listening to the Own Your Creativity podcast with me, your host, Elizabeth Johnston. Now, before we jump into today's interview, I wanted to share two things with you. First, I wanted to say a big thank you to my listeners. The Own Your Creativity podcast has been on air for less than a month, and already you've downloaded the show a total of 1,311 times. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) I also wanted to thank those of you who have left such wonderful ratings and reviews. Here are just a few of the comments you've left. Bruce at Mindfulness Mode says, Great content. I totally believe in the value of creativity, so I appreciate this real look at how creativity plays a part in the lives of Elizabeth's guests. Now, I've been listening to Bruce's show on Mindfulness Mode and just love it. The most recent one I listened to was about the mindful nature of horses and how they create mindfulness in us too. Another comment is from DW84. She says, great encouragement, super show to encourage your own creativity. I know I need to exercise my creativity more and more consistently. The topics covered and interviewees are a great help. D-Dub, I'm so glad the show is helpful. That is my mission, to help as many people as I can to build a relationship with creativity so that it's second nature and not second place. And this comment is uh, from Italy Kitty, JC. She says, excellent, excellent podcast with awesome guests and awesome content. Very informative. Looking forward to listening to more episodes. And you know, this show is nothing without you listeners. So thank you so much for your encouragement and for being here. The second thing that I wanted to mention is that I'll be interviewing David Cote of Crudescence in an upcoming episode. He is the co-founder and manager of this raw vegan restaurant here in Montreal. And I just love that restaurant, by the way. (laughs) Uh, He's also the co-author of five books, including a bestseller, translated into five languages. He's also a shiatsu therapist, an acro yoga teacher, a living food chef, and inspiring public speaker. And now I heard him speak at TEDx Concordia recently, and I can attest to his ability to inspire. He was also named Entrepreneur of the Year in 2015 by the Quebec Young Chamber of Commerce. So what would you like me to ask David in my interview with him? send me an email with your question to info at ownyourcreativity.com. And if I use your question, I'll also mention you by name as the originator. And without further ado, here's today's interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here because today we're going to be talking to L.P. Camozzi. He is a Montreal-based country blues, Americana kind of singer-songwriter who started his musical career writing and performing original fun music for kids while playing harmonica, guitar, and spoons. Now he's moving on to adults with his new original release, Take Me Dancing, the title track for an upcoming adult album planned for 2017. Welcome, Pat. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. I'm happy to be here. 
we actually met while teaching at Concordia. And I think you were teaching in marketing back then, weren't you? I was teaching marketting, advertising, consumer behavior type courses. It's my day job career. I've always been uh, involved in the marketing and advertising world. And most recently in the last, uh, since I started my own company back in 1986, I've gotten to write all my own ads for customers. So I basically started transitioning to artistic work when I moved to Montreal in 2001. And within three months in Montreal, I'd written my first album, even though I'd never written an album before. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. So uh, that was the start of uh, writing and performing for kids. Uh, so I've been doing that basically since uh, 2001. It kind of culminated in a four-month tour of the U.S. the year I turned 60 in 2012, and I performed across the U.S. And now in the last few years, I've really just been concentrating on getting uh, back on my feet and starting over. So I haven't done too much, uh, a lot of new stuff until this year. In the month of March this year, I launched not only uh, my first or second adult cut, but I also launched my third children's picture book which just came out and we're just heading into the official launch of that in the next couple of weeks and that's the uh the tanka book right yes it's a it's a book written in tonka japanese tonka poetry form uh it's called alpha bones candy because it's an abc book um so it's kind of a unique book i don't think there's ever been a children's book as far as i know written in north america in a tonka form so on top of having uh, some engaging poems for each letter. There's some really cool black and white illustrations that my son did. And it also has find objects in the illustrations. And the illustrations can be colored. So it's kind of an ABC, alphabet, Tonka activity book for kids who are probably grades two to three. Yeah, and they can color in the, the black and white drawings, right? Yeah, and we didn't do that purposely. It was just the pen and ink was how Zach likes to draw. So there was never any discussion of color illustrations. And then all of a sudden we find out that the whole world is producing coloring books for kids and adults. So we're right on the <laughs> on the front end of the uh, trend there. So we'll see what happens. In the book that you sent me, Alpha Bones Candy, uh, I think my favorite is Zebra. Zebra, what if stripes weren't your style? <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting pick. The original poem, What If Stripes Weren't Mandatory? But we thought it was a little too big a word, so I, I changed it. There's a few poems like that that are, that are very discussable with your kid. You know, like, uh, you know, what do you mean by that? You know, well, if, you're, if you feel like you're a little different, then how do you deal with it? And that's uh, certainly, it's a good segue into uh, your questions about creativity. Mm-hmm. And so what is your definition of creativity? Creativity is identifying opportunity through contrarian thinking. To simplify that, see the crowd and go the other way. Really? And why do you believe that? Well, because I've never been the type of person, whether it's in advertising or otherwise, that's 
started my creative process by looking at what everybody else does. And there's many people I know who have been very successful doing that in advertising. If you're given a short deadline to produce a, a campaign, for example, quite often an art director might research designs from all around the world and look for the latest trend and then adapt it to his own style and jump back into it and meet his deadline. I've always been a contrarian. I've always tried to look for different gaps. So to me, that's how I approach it. It's not that I don't research, but it's just that it's not necessarily the first thing on my priority list. So do you explore things first and get a sense of what your take or angle on something might be or your interpretation and then go and see what other people have done to make sure that you haven't duplicated it? Sometimes, but I I think I trust in the fact that a lot of people haven't done it. For example, when I wrote uh, Spice Capita, that dancing guy, I spent six months in a dance library researching different forms of dance in order to create a story. I probably could have benefited from more research there because I, what I found with that is that people interpreted the story as a copycat idea of something else that had been in a broadcast format and I had never considered that because it was to me it was a story of a boy growing up through dance it wasn't anything about wanting necessarily to become the way this kid showed up in the movie so there's risks if you don't do your research for sure but I also have been a published Tonka poet now for 10 years and I had never seen anything published for children in the Tonka form so there's checks and balances. This is why some people, and again, all my work is self-published, so there's a limit to how much time I have to do research or comparatives to what else is going on out there. One of the things that you did was writing for people, like, you know, sit down and chat with them for five minutes and you'd write a poem about them. Can you talk a little bit more about how you started on that? How I started on that was basically I've sold most of the work that I produced personally. For example, my first book was called Pasta Pazoo, and I personally sold over 1,500 copies of that book in the province of Quebec, which technically makes it a bestseller in children's literature in Quebec. That's amazing. So, and I've done lots of craft fairs and public events, and because I had been working on the Tonka Poetry Project for over six years, originally it was accepted by a publisher, and they hung on to it for three years, and then they changed their minds. So I was a little bit frustrated with that, to say the least. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, I always liked the writing form, so I found it was a, an effective hook to get people to sit down at my table, and I would, more often than not, write a pretty good poem in 10 minutes or less. A number of people have framed those poems. It's so it's just a, it's a good way to to pass the day and keep you fresh. You're always looking at new ideas, and it's just fun, engaging thing to do. So, and it's a great way to hone your craft. Well, exactly, and that's something. You know, again, that goes back to my advertising background. Is you're always thinking in terms of a unique positioning or something that sets you apart. So it's a very, very effective thing. And the other thing that I do differently is I don't write traditional tonka. I write as few words as possible. So quite often, traditional tonka it has a very rigid syllable structure, which I don't stick to, and neither do other contemporary tonka poets. But there's very few that use as few words as I do. And it's the same with Alpha Bones Candy. It's a you know, picture books in the last uh, number of years have steadily declined in words. They, it's, they've become, in many cases, picture books, picture books with, you know, see the cat. <laughs> yes, I see the cat. <laughs> the minimalist. It's the minimalist. Well, even they'll tell you. I mean, it used to be that a picture book could, could have a thousand words in the old days. Now, 
Uh, I think if you do anything over 300, the publishers are going, oh, geez, that's too hard for people to read. They don't have time. You know? <laughs> Even kids don't uh, have the time. <laughs> so on average, my Tonka poems in Alpha Bones Candy are probably uh, seven to eight words, whereas a traditional Tonka poem would easily run 15, 16 words, maybe a bit more. And you always want to try to have a punchline to it. It's like you picked up on the zebra one. It's, there's another one there called for the letter H, which is help me, hold me, heal me. Will that be all? <laughs> you know, I, that's a great so one. So it flips around to the parent. And uh, I know that I, right now I've had very, very good reaction to the book from people who bought the book, especially fathers for some reason, just because it's very interactive. It really creates an a environment for kids to ask their parents, what does that mean? Or what are you talking about? What is holy moly? You know, there's a the kaleidoscope poem is, well, it's going to be kaleidoscope, or the K letter is kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope, tube toy, spinning shapes, just for holy moly. Now, my son, who's 30, who did the book, he wanted me to change that because he didn't know what holy moly was. Well, <laughs> it was a teaching moment. <laughs> yeah, it's for your 30-year-old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I also like M, moon full of holes where flying cows missed. Yeah, that was probably the one of the first ones written and one of the longest ones to stay without edit. And of course, it's based on cows jumping over the moon, which relates back to older fairy tales. And, and again, it, it's a teachable moment for a kid. The kid goes, what do you mean by that? Well, you remember the story I told you about the cow jumped over the moon? Well, this guy who wrote this is crazy, and he's got a cow getting shot over the moon, you know? <laughs> if, you look, if you look carefully in gravity, you'll see one of the cows flying by for the letter G. So there's a little bit of a foreshadow in the G letter. Well, I'm looking forward to the whole thing uh, when it comes out. And that's in a couple of weeks, eh? You're having your launch? April 19th, the uh, Georges Lowen Optician, which is directly connected to the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, who will be carrying the book. And so I'll be doing a signing prior to the event at the Fine Arts Boutique. And then there's a, the official event starts at 5 till 6.30. And we'll have a little bit of, uh, I don't know what we're going to do to entertain people yet, but we're working on it. Oh, great. I'm looking forward to that. So you said that earlier that you have self-published your work and also just now that the Museum Boutique is going to be carrying it. So can you talk a little bit about the self-publishing process and how it also incorporates things like marketing yourself and getting yourself in bookstores? Well, the self-publishing process is a not for every person because it's very demanding. You have to, like in the case of my books, for example, not only am I the author, but I'm the organizational guy. I'm the guy who checks printers. I'm the guy who proofs stuff. I'm the guy who hires editors, uh, which is a critical part of any self-publishing, by the way. If you really want to self-publish, you have to have professional editors working with you and of course it's the money side of it you've, you've got to find the money to do it I mean I was probably the first self-published hardcover author in Canada in 2005 when I published Pass to Pazoo and I printed it in India and it was a pure accident I was going to print uh, Pass to Pazoo in Quebec and I found out it was going to cost me something like eight dollars a book for a soft cover book and I was prepared to buy 500 books 
at eight bucks, which is $4,000, to just say, I've got a book and I'm going to do it. And just by accident, I said, well, what, what if it takes off? Because you're always thinking it's going to take off. What will I do? So I started trolling around online and I found this printer in India. And I sent him an email and I said, how much would you charge me to produce this 16-page uh, book in hardcover? Which, by the way, anybody in North America would never do because they wouldn't touch anything less than 32 pages. It's too hard to do. And he said, uh, 75 cents U.S. Oh, my goodness. Wow. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll take 2,000 copies. That's amazing. And I got about 1,600 usable copies. Oh, okay. There were some production issues, but basically uh, the process even then wasn't that difficult. I mean, it's they were using a modern press, but their post-production was all handmade. These books were all hand-stitched. Wow, that's amazing. So if you're going to self-publish, it's totally doable. I mean, you can print a very nice hardcover book in Hong Kong, beautifully produced for probably two fifty a book today. So but if you're publishing, if you're self-publishing, then you gotta you've gotta finance it, you've gotta take all the risk and you've gotta do all the work. The hard work is just now. I mean once you get the everything you produce, then the real hard work starts. The Fine Arts Museum, that's consignment as well? It will be, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they're very good. I mean, they, they carried Spice Capita, and uh, it, it actually did fairly well there as a you know a single retail outlet. Uh, but consignment contracts are pretty standard. I mean, they, they all have, you know, we take the book, and then if it sells, we pay you, and then we order, and some of them have pay you on monthly, or some of them pay you annually, or whatever. Why is it that you complement your day job with these creative pursuits? It's a retirement plan. Oh, okay. <laughs> when I moved to Montreal, I said I need to, as a self-employed entrepreneur, after all these years, you, you don't necessarily have a retirement pension plan. You know? It's too thin a business to do that. So I said, well, what, do, what would I really like to do when I get old and gray and I'm getting there? I said, well, I really like kids. And in, in particular, in, in my case, I really felt that there was a, a serious problem with the way things were happening with boys. And I saw that happen in my children's school because I was on parent committees and I could see where because there was such an effort to improve the lives and rights and whatever for girls, the flip side of that is that the boys were basically getting dumped off the back of the hay wagon in the school system. And... Uh, so my first album was called Even Kids Get the Blues, and it was strictly written from a boy's perspective. Second album was Even Kids Go Country. Again, it was boys pre-teen sort of issues. Like Pasta Pazoo was not a... Pasta Pazoo was the first book, but it was written long long before it was written before i ha even had a goal to work on this so it was a young girl who was the was passed to pazoo but spice capita was a boy again who loved to dance so it was a book about a boy dancing and, da and he travels around the world of dance and learns different little life lessons where he goes so now since that time i've sort of modified my theme a little bit because i've actually got a lot of resistance from a range of people because i was only doing something for boys and why aren't you doing it for girls i said well actually i am kind of doing it for girls because take a look at what's happening with girls now in their 20s and there's no decent guys out there you know they're just the boys have fallen by the wayside in a lot of ways and they get so you know we got 60 to 70 percent 
university enrollment is now girls. And there's a real imbalance that has happened in the last 15 years in terms of the development of both sexes, you know. So it's going to create and is creating some big problems in terms of uh, relationships. And uh... so anyway, I kind of got off the theme because, you know, just like, I'm just going to write stuff that's appealing and natural and questioning and we'll see where it goes from there. And or move into adult music because it's more uh, open. You know, there's no, you're not getting into areas that people can uh, think you're on a tangent or something. You know, it's just, no, it's, it's okay, fine, I'll... I'll homogenize it and write a love story about my 35-year marriage. How, is that good enough? You know. Well, I hope you can still find some part of your writing for that issue because I think it's an important one, and I'd be sad if you just homogenized everything. Yeah, me too. So don't be sad. Okay, good. Phew. <laughs> 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 so in terms of your own relationship to creativity, have you ever had a time in your life where you felt that you weren't as connected to doing creative things that you, as you would have liked to? Well, that was the toughest question, I think. And this just might be because I'm an independent self-publisher. The time I felt most disconnected from my work is when it was sitting with a publisher and I was waiting for it to happen, so, as opposed to, okay, I've finished the book, I'm happy with it, the edits are good, the illustrations are good, let's print it, you know? So, first of all, I had to go... When you're making applications with a book and you're sending it out to 30 publishers and you're following up and you're chasing everybody and you finally get picked by somebody and you sign the contract and everybody gets excited, even though you're getting basically nothing for it at the end of the day. And then you wait, you know you're going to have to wait two to three years because they've got to make sure they've got the government grant in order to produce it. And then you finally get the rug pulled out of it because the children editor changes and she doesn't understand the concept. Yeah, you're disconnected because you have no control control you know so you self-publish you totally control it so we come to the part of the show called the creative surge segment so what is the best advice you've ever received in terms of creativity don't change it (laughs) oh really yeah share one of your personal habits that contributes to your creative success daily exercise physical exercise physical exercise why is that because you can't force an idea, you know, and I, I know this from advertising writing, you can't, there's only so much that you can, you can do before you have to take a break and you have to clear your head or you have to sleep on it or you have to have a hot shower or you have to go for a walk or you have to take the dog out or you have to go skiing or in the middle of the week uh, or go fishing on a Friday afternoon because you know nobody's going to phone you. You have to take those breaks, otherwise you'll never complete it. And it's, so you... You need, you need that physical exercise to stimulate the mental side. And what person inspires you to be creative? Uh, it's not one person, I would say. Well, for, it is. First of, first of all, it's me. Mm. It's me. I want to be creative. Many, many years ago, I went to a demonstration of this new computer, and somebody wanted to show us how they had a new program where you could actually color images on your computer. It was probably a Mac, and a basic Mac in those days cost about $20,000. Oh, my goodness. 
and you couldn't really do anything much on it. But here was a little setting where you could put color into a black and white image. In this case, the image was a desert scene, right? With those cactus and a couple mountains in the background and what have you. And they said, okay, so what color do you want to make the sky? And I had recently in the advertising business gone to Arizona to shoot a television commercial and the sky was actually kind of purple down there at this particular time. And I said, let's make it purple. And everybody in the room went, there's no such thing as a purple sky. It's blue. I said, I've seen a purple sky. And the cactus were actually red. They weren't green. They were red because the sun hit. So I kept on my case and everybody was going, oh God, the cactus should be green and the sky should be blue. So I walked out of the meeting and this one woman came up to me and she said, I really liked your ideas with the color. (laughs) Yeah. So that goes back to uh, the best advice you've ever received. Don't change it. (laughs) Right. Right. Stick with it. Uh, so the other, so besides me, it's my children and grandchildren, and one of my sisters is very supportive of what I've done over the years. So, and what is your favorite work of art? It can be any type of art. Uh, it would have to be music in general, because I've always, but I my particular style of music leans towards Americana. I love bluegrass music because I love singing. And uh, if I had to pick one artist who stands out to me as being like whoa, what planet did this guy come from? It would be Freddie Mercury. Really? Why? Oh, because he was just so... I'll I'll never forget, I was living in Toronto in the 70s, I guess, and uh, the the radio stations in those days, if they got new albums in, they would play the whole album, or they would play a couple songs off the album, right? It was all old school, of course. But when uh, whatever the album was, Night of the Opera, came, came out with Freddie Mercury, the first big Queen album, and Chum Radio Station in Toronto, they played the whole album three times in a row because they'd never heard anything like the way this guy could sing. Wow. Yeah. We played the whole album three times in a row, both sides of the album. (laughs) That's unheard of. Yeah, but that's, you know. And a favorite quote that inspires you? Just do it. Just do it. (laughs) I can see that. (laughs) Because you'll never know until you try, right? Right. You can't really get hurt by trying too much. The, the biggest objection, I think, I, or the, and it, I think this is a Canadian thing, too. I mean, I, I actually like the Americans' attitude towards art a lot more in some ways. When I, tr- when I toured through the U.S., I, I was couch surfing. So I stayed with Americans uh, in their homes. And as part of the deal was, I always said, I, I'll do a show for your family since you're putting me up, along with whatever I had contracted. And there wasn't one place that I didn't go in the U.S. where they would just buy your book to support you or buy your CD, even if they didn't like it. The very fact that you were making an effort to do it, they saw as entrepreneurial, right? So to me, like Canada is not an entrepreneurial country and the art system in Canada is not an entrepreneurial system. It's a government-based, subsidized, political system. In the, United, in the United States, you're on your own. If you make it in the States and you, you can make it very big in the States because A, it's huge and B, it's entrepreneurial. But I, I, I find Canada in some ways quite limiting because it's especially book publishing. I mean, they're all every single book publisher in Canada is totally dependent on funding in order to survive because the market's so small. And so that in turn, do you think that limits people's creativity then here in Canada? depends i guess uh but i think there are certain acceptable things if you want to produce an album and you you want to get a canada council grant uh used to be you had to have a producer as part of the package professional producer and i always sort of saw that as a bit of a employment program for producers you know 
I don't know. It's just sort of a, a thing that you fit into. I've met musicians, very, very good musicians, who feel quite strongly that they don't really support system in Canada. I mean, as far as everybody goes, if you do a certain style of music that fits in with whatever. Now, there's a lot of other people that argue with that because the, the quality of good music coming out of Canada right now is, is unbelievable. So they would argue that the system works, but I don't know. I don't know. Wow, you've just opened up a whole new area of discussion, but we do need to wrap it up. Okay. And I have to say, though, that it's been fascinating talking to you. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on the show. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. And if I could just remind folks, if they're in Montreal, they're welcome to come to my book launch on April 19th at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. And they are also welcome to vote for Take Me Dancing on the CBC Searchlight competition that's going on right now. So I'm, my music is up there to be uh, admired and loved by all Canadians. And do you have a website that you'd like to share? Sure. LP, as in Leonard Patrick, Camozzi, C-A-M-O-Z-Z-I dot com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, Elizabeth. We've crossed paths so many times in the last few years, and we, I know you work really, really hard, and you're successful for that reason. I'm really happy to see your business develop here and your consulting develop on this side of things, too. So, Well, thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you again next Wednesday with another interview to help you own your creativity. <laughs> 